Good evening. How's everybody doing tonight? Doing well? Listen, we are in week eight of uh, Sunday school, and our first track through was on this idea and the topic of reading and interpreting the word. And uh, so tonight we are concluding our eight-week series on reading and interpreting the word, and we are uh, talking about revelation. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I intentionally put this one last one because uh, for some reason, revelation is one of those topics and books that uh, Christians want to learn a lot about, but don't ever read Revelation, uh, you know, from at, at least in my own experience. Like, uh, it's very intriguing, but at the same time, uh, I, I haven't, I, up until the last couple of years, had never really, you don't really go to Revelation 14 for devotional reading. And, uh, and so we put it last because really, I feel like every week's been building on each week. And we've been building uh, towards this week. And so all of the interpretive, interpretive tools and hermeneutical language that we've been learning leads us kind of to tonight. And so I want to lay out, really uh, give us four goals for this evening that we're going to talk through, answer these four questions about Revelation. One, what is it? Two, why was it written? Three, who wrote it? And then four, how do we approach and interpret Revelation? So why are we going to answer these questions? Well, because, like we've been saying every week, we don't want to read Revelation on our terms, but rather on its terms, right? That, that Scripture has been written through many various literary styles. So for us to get at the meaning and get at the context of what's being said, we first have to maybe understand some things about how it was written literarily. So we want to read Revelation on its terms, right? Not ours. So uh, I, I really can't stress this enough because Oftentimes, what happens is we'll read things in Revelation, and then we immediately want to set what it's saying in our context. But like all um, understanding meaning in the biblical text, we want to read it on its terms, not on ours. So what does that mean? We need to put away our presuppositions of the text that we already have. When I say presuppositions, I mean our made-up ideas of what it says. So we want to come into Revelation tonight, not with an idea of what we think it says, but rather uh, with an open mind. So put aside uh, the fiction of the Left Behind series. Uh, set aside your pre, mid, post-tribulation ideas. Put aside your terms uh, so that we can read Revelation on its terms. The goal tonight is not f uh, for us to see Kirk Cameron in Revelation. The goal for us uh, tonight is who, 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 who did the newer one? What was his name? And he was in, uh, was it National Treasure or something like that? Nicholas Cage. You know, Nicholas Cage isn't going to pop out uh, in Revelation to us. Uh, so Let's set that aside. 
Let's remember a couple of things. This, let, 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 let's start with this. Let's remember this. The text, the scripture cannot mean something for us that it did not mean for them. Revelation cannot mean something for us in 2023 that it did not mean for the writer and also the audience in which he's writing. Revelation has a specific, a specific audience, and they're about to go specific situations. And the primary meaning of any text, including apocalyptic texts like we're going to read tonight, is that which John himself intended, which in turn must be something the original readers or listeners would have been capable of understanding. So let's answer the first question, the who, right? Who wrote Revelation? Well, uh, the general consensus is John the Apostle wrote Revelation. And we're going to see uh, th this is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote the three epistles of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And so John, he writes this while he's uh, enslaved on an island called Patmos. He's prisoner. Uh, we'll read in a little later where, where he, why is he prisoner? He's a prisoner because of his testimony to Jesus. And, and the empire has enslaved him on an island by himself so that he will stop spreading uh, the gospel and giving his testimony to Jesus. Little did they know that a part of the canon would be written on this island used for punishment. Now, uh, let, let, let's talk about maybe what is Revelation? What is it? For many, Revelation is seen as a book of secrets, ready to be unlocked about the mysteries of the end. There's movies made of its imagery, many different interpretations about the coming judgment of God. However, may we not forget that Revelation is a part of Scripture and that it's inspired for our edification. All Scripture is inspired for our edification, our correction, but also our knowledge in the way in which we, it leads us to Jesus. So though this book may seem mysterious to us, it was not mysterious so much to its original hearers and audience. Many of us have heard sermons from maybe from the first four or even five chapters of Revelation, but, uh, and you might even do a lot of devotional reading through the first five chapters of Revelation. But once you reach chapter six, it starts to get a little confusing. Because in chapter six, so you get introduced to, uh, the, the reader gets introduced to four colored horses and souls under the altar and this great earthquake. And then a book that seems familiar is about to become less familiar to us. But though it is unfamiliar to us, it would not be unfamiliar to the first century listener. And I keep referring to it as a listener because remember, Scripture uh, was not, you know, they didn't have Bibles in the first century to read. Uh, it wasn't read like this. They were in scrolls. And in order to hear the word, you would go to church, you would sit, and one person would read out loud, and then 
the listeners would hear the word, and that's how the word of God. So apocalyptic literature, we're going to get to this in a minute, but a lot of images. Revelation has a lot of images. The imagery is vast. Well, it's meant to ignite the imaginations of the listeners. It's written potentially even for the listeners in mind. And it's here uh, in Revelation chapter 6 that we get thrown into a literary genre that we're a little unfamiliar with. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time as we intro into Revelation. And I want to look at uh, the literary genre of Revelation. So if you're taking notes, we can start by saying literary genre. And uh, it's really broken down into three different types of literary genres. What makes Revelation tough is uh, it's, it's, uh, it's unique in that it's pulling from three different literary genres, one of which we've already covered, one that we kind of covered, and then the new one that we're talking about tonight. The first is this, apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature. The second is prophecy. And then the third is something that we're super familiar with, which is it's a letter. And Revelation is using all three of these uh, literary genres, and John's using it purposefully. And he's purposely doing it to write something that's not yet been written. And so he's pulling from each of these three literary genres. For instance, Revelation 1.1 says this, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God, gave, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John. Revelation is is apocalypse. And so uh, the word revelation here is uh, the, uh, the word apocalypse. So in essence, it's, this is a, an apocalypse from Jesus Christ. He sent an angel to present this apocalypse to his servant, John. Now I'll jump down if you're in, if you're in Revelation chapter 1. Let's look at verse 3 says, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. So he's telling us it's an apocalypse. It's a prophecy to the church for he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. So John has already classified this as apocalyptic. It's a revelation. Uh, He's classified it as prophecy. But then in verse four, he does something else. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So in the first four verses, what John's doing is he's speaking to his audience and he's laying out, hey, this is apocalyptic, this is prophecy, and this is a letter that I'm writing to seven specific churches. And Revelation is three types of literature, all in a single whole piece, It is apocalyptic, it is prophecy, and it is a letter. So let's look at a moment. 
at apocalyptic literature. We haven't talked about this yet. We haven't spoken on this literary genre. A letter, we, we covered a whole week on it. We're pretty familiar with it. With, with it. And uh, f- familiar with it. That, that was funny. That was funny. But apocalyptic literature is really foreign to us because it was a specific kind of literature that flourished first among Jews and then Christians for roughly about a 400-year period between 200 B.C. and 200 A.D. And since then, we don't have much of it today. Actually, we don't have any of it today. Maybe uh, the closest form of apocalyptic literature that we have today would be like um, uh, yeah, Lord of the Rings or something, but that's not even, it's not even related, like, uh, but something that uses a lot of imagery and imagination. Apocalyptic writing was concerned about two things. It was concerned about judgment and salvation. And, and the apocalyptic writing that was around from 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. concerned themselves with these two things. Oftentimes, the writers of apocalyptic literature, they were engaged in subversive culture that prophesied judgment on their persecutors. So apocalyptic literature would be written by someone that is being oppressed, an oppressed people, And in essence, would be a prophecy to the oppressor that judgment was ahead. And the oppressor was an enemy of God who at the time of the writing appeared so powerful that there was no hope except for divine intervention. It was a way of making sense, if you will, of the oppression that was happening in the context of the writer. In apocalyptic literature... It no longer looked for God to bring about redemption within history, but rather they pictured an end of history where God's people are redeemed. And so this literary style focused from that vantage point, from the vantage point of the oppressed and then judgment being brought to the oppressor and salvation being brought to the oppressed. So, John is similar in three ways to apocalyptic literature. And so we're talking about generically apocalyptic literature. We're not only talking about Revelation right here in this moment. We're just laying out apocalyptic literature in general. But there are three similarities that that John, as he's writing this, that he's similar with other apocalyptic literature. So the next three things are going to relate to Revelation and apocalyptic literature at large. The form of apocalyptic writings often comes in visions and dreams. You can tell that in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of visions, a lot of dreams. In fact, it opens with a vision. It opens suddenly Uh, Verse 10, uh, it says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I was worshiping in the spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice, uh, like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see. Send it to the seven churches in the cities. And it lists the cities. And then he begins to have uh, this vision. And all apocalyptic literature, visions and dreams were common. 
The second literary device of apocalyptic literature that Revelation shares with other apocalyptic literature, say that five times fast, is that the language of apocalyptic literature is often very cryptic and symbolic. For instance, in Revelation, the apocalyptist, the person that's giving the apocalypse, sees a woman clothed with the sun. And we understand both what a woman is and the sun is, but the combination of a woman being clothed in the sun is not an expression that is of any known reality. It's, it's, it's like when you, we understand what a woman is, we understand what the sun is, but it's when you combine it together, like what is happening here? It's cryptic, it's symbolic language. Similarly, John sees a beast having seven heads and ten horns. And while we understand what a beast might be and what heads and horns are, human beings have no experience of them in the combination where a beast has seven heads and ten horns. And we understand them individually, but it's the moment that, that John kind of begins to share like this image and paint a picture that we're like, oh my goodness, what's, what's happening here? Apocalypses, uh, number three, the third literary device of apocalyptic literature after cryptic and symbolic, is apocalypses, uh, apocalypses, am I saying that correctly? Apocalypses. When you start saying it so much, it feels like you're saying it weird. You know, like there's, you ever say a word and you're like, that just sounds weird. That's where I'm at right now. Apocalypses are often formally stylized and not only are symbolic in imagery, but can contain symbolic numbers. And in this way, Revelation fits into the categories of apocalyptic literature. In this way, it fits in that literary language. And John is true to the apocalyptic genre, but he also is radically different from them. And it's here that he divides away from the apocalyptic literature. And, and uh, there are two more. We're going to name these four and five since there's still, John uses these three, but he's going to do two others that's unique to him. John is not just an apocalyptic writer. He's also a Christian prophet who is speaking directly to his generation. So he's speaking to specific people. What in the world? Did y'all hear that? So, John doesn't come to us under a pseudonymous name, but rather identifies himself as John, meaning apocalyptic literature. Let me actually probably write this better. Let's, let, let's classify this as the known author. It's a better way of understanding. Apocalyptic literature would, would use a name that's not real or, or 
that is, uh, they wouldn't give their real name. They, they might would write under the name of somebody else. Whereas John is identifying himself as John. The fifth thing that, but the second, really the second thing, and it seems away from black literature, but where John is unique in is John abandons the fifth feature of apocalyptic writing by giving the command for the book not to be sealed up, but rather to be read out loud. So John's saying, hey, don't seal the book. In apocalyptic literature, when it was written, it would be sealed up because it was a a mystery. It was... It was written, and uh, apocalyptic literature typically would call for the book to be sealed and later read at another point that, that um, would, would, would make it a little more haunting, maybe. I don't know if that's the correct term or not, but it fits for how we're, we're talking about it. But John actually gives instruction for the book to be read, but not just read, but obeyed. That, that the book of Revelation is meant to be obeyed. And so for, for the early church, they would read this as, as kind of like marching orders, if you will. And so for us, we want to read it in a way that we are able to obey the scripture. Gordon Fee points out this. John, therefore, is not simply anticipating the end as were some of his Jewish predecessors and contemporaries. Rather, John knows the end to have begun with Jesus through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Absolutely crucial to all of this is his understanding of the Spirit as having come to be with God's people until the end. And thus, as the way the risen Lord continues to be with them, so note, Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. I, 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 love, I love this verse. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. I'm just going to read it. It says, it was the Lord's day, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. But I love this. It was the Lord's day. What is he saying? This came to him on a Sunday, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Paul is alone by himself on the island of Patmos, still gathering on a Sunday to worship. It's incredible. But he's in the spirit and he's worshiping in the spirit. That though the empire put him on the island of Patmos alone, John is not alone. He's with the spirit and he's worshiping in the spirit. Now note, this prophecy was in the spirit And an important differentiation from other apocalyptic writers is that they were of the age of the quenched spirit, meaning that the spirit had not been poured out yet. Remember Acts chapter 2, the spirit's poured out and, and Peter gives this first sermon and he says, this is what the prophets prophesied. In Joel chapter 2, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And, and John is writing from that understanding. Other apocalyptic 
writers and Jewish understanding would, would go, they're writing not from a place of the spirit being poured out. They're operating from a place anticipating the spirit, anticipating the end being enacted. But what John is doing is he's saying that when the spirit was poured out, the end has already begun. Because of the outpouring of the spirit, John equated this outpouring of the spirit as an eschatological sign that the end had begun. So John is writing from this understanding that we are living in the end. That the end began when the spirit was poured out. Now here's something that I think is very applicable for us as Pentecostals. Early Pentecostals thought the exact same way. In fact... Why we believe in the imminent return of Christ is because early Pentecostals said that, that there was this outpouring of the Spirit at Azusa, an outpouring Spirit all across the world that they said the Spirit is proof that Jesus is about to return, that he's pouring out his Spirit in such a way, just like in Acts chapter 2, and this is eschatological proof that Jesus is coming back soon. And so for us in our Pentecostal tradition, we find a home here in going that the Spirit is, uh, is proof of Christ's soon return. And we believe in the imminency of his return, that he can come back and, and he's coming back uh, to return to the earth to, to bring judgment and to, and, and to, and to bring salvation to humanity. The question is, <laughs> which side are you on? Now, Revelation is an apocalyptic book that is born in persecution. I want us to understand that. Persecution is one of the primary topics that Revelation is speaking on, speaking to. Revelation is speaking to a people that are experiencing persecution, but it's also writing that they should anticipate much more persecution. So it's apocalyptic in that it's born from a place of oppression, but it's prophetic in its intent and content, like what it's trying to say is prophetic in nature. So this letter is a word from God to their present situation, but it's written against the backdrop of the future. So let me say that again. It's written to a present situation with the backdrop of the future, their immediate future, but also an ultimate end future. And we'll, we'll kind of talk about that in just a moment. So it's apocalyptic in that it's born from oppression and almost like a letter against the uh, oppressor. It's prophetic in that it's speaking... Um, in intent and content, and then it's a letter written to a specific audience. It's a letter in that it's written to seven specific churches. The seven churches, John uh, chapter 1, 
Verse 11, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea are the seven churches. And he's writing to these seven specific churches for their encouragement. Maybe we'll say watchfulness. We'll look at that in just a moment. As they stand on the brink of a great holocaust by the hand of the Roman Empire. And John's writing to these seven specific churches because there is a great persecution that is about to happen. Paul uses the term, there's a great tribulation that's about to happen, that, that they've experienced tribulation. But there's a tribulation to come that they're about to experience in greater measure. So we got a little bit about <clears throat> what it is. Now let's start to look at why it was written. Because it's here that we start to see maybe some context. So now we looked at the genre, but let's look at why it was written. The most dominant theme throughout the book is the theme of holy war. Gordon Fee puts it under this idea. And this holy war doesn't begin in Revelation. This holy war begins in Genesis chapter 3 as humanity begins to struggle with the effects of sin in the world. This holy war is a war that the early church experienced, but it's also a war that Abraham experienced. It's also a war that Isaiah experienced. It's also a war in which you and I are engaged in now. And the role of God or the role of God's people is to engage in the holy war. John's writing to his people that, that we are meant to, uh, that there, there are things happening that, uh, that, that are going to happen to us. But don't forget that there's this, there's this war that's happening, and we're meant to engage with it. But the lot of the people of God in the war is going to be one of suffering. The lot of the seven churches that they're about to experience is that of suffering, their present suffering, but also their impending suffering that's about to come at the hands of the Roman Empire. The, the, the hands of Caesar. Now John, as a prophet, he understood that the martyrdom of Antipas of Pergamum was the forerunner of the persecution to come. Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, uh, Jesus is speaking to the church at Pergamum, and John writes it in verse 13, where it says, I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you've remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas my faithful witness was martyred among you there in Satan's city. And John, in Revelation chapter 2, he has a prophetic insight to recognize that the martyrdom of Antipas is but the beginning 
of a holocaust that will soon overtake those who proclaim as Lord, not only someone other than Caesar, but the one whom a former Caesar had executed as a criminal of the state. Looking contextually at what it meant to be a Christian in the early church, living under the Roman Empire, you served a guy that the Roman Empire crucified for claiming to be Lord. And you remember what was hung over his cross? Jesus, King of the Jews. You serve the guy that the empire crucified and put to death because they thought that he was the king and going to overthrow the Roman Empire. That's a dangerous way to live. It's a dangerous way. I was going to say, give uh, some maybe modern context, but it's hard to put ourselves in that because we don't, we don't live in that in our context as, as, as Americans. Maybe it would be like living, uh, I'm giving a fictional scenario here. You live in Cuba and, uh, you know, Fidel's the guy and you're a part of a rebellion group and uh, they kill your leader. And then you keep going and saying, this guy is the real leader. You're, you're living in dangerous territory there. The Roman Empire will not have it. And this is the guy that, that we, that, that they are serving. However, in the midst of the current persecution and with more on the way, John is still interested with some housekeeping issues in the seven churches. So before they get into all the future suffering, he's, he's encouraging them. He is correcting them. And many of us have heard the sermons, you know, uh, you, I don't want you to be hot or cold. Or I want you to be hot or cold. Stop being lukewarm. Return to your first love. But he's giving some basic instructions to these churches before he unveils the apocalypse. So let's look at some insights, some more insights as to why it was written. Revelation was written to appeal for faithfulness and watchfulness. Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 says, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. He blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. So he starts by, by giving, uh, by book, so we're going to look at a bookend here. He starts by saying, you're going to be blessed if you listen and obey these words. Let's flip all the way to the end of Revelation, Revelation 22, verse 7. Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. And he says this, blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. He says, look, be watchful, be alert, and obey. We want to we understand what John's saying in Revelation. He's, he's calling a church that is about to exp that is experiencing a hard time, but also about to experience a really hard time 
to not give up, to not allow the pressure that the Roman Empire is about to press on them, to crush them, even though they're going to die, but for them to remain faithful in the midst of that because God will avenge them. And then we're going to get to that in a moment, but that's what he's saying. And he's saying, be watchful. Why? Because Jesus is about to return. Now in Romans 7, Romans, goodness, it's been a long day. Revelation 22 verse 7 The closing benediction is a blessing. And this blessing rests on those who obey the words of prophecy written in the book. So Revelation starts and ends with this idea of listening and obeying, being faithful and watchful. In essence, those that are faithful will be blessed and those that are not are assumed to be cursed. Again, we're falling on the side of judgment, salvation. I think it's appropriate here um, to say when you read the book of Revelation, it should encourage you in your salvation but it should also humble us understanding that judgment's real. Right. And we're, we'll, we'll talk about this. And you, 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 do, you shouldn't be worried if you're saved or if you're not saved. You profess that Jesus is king, is Lord. And we'll even talk about the implications of what that means in the context of Rome and Caesar. You shall be saved. You confess Jesus as Lord. So we need to have uh, a security in knowing whose side we're on, but a soberness, humility of going, man, judgment is real and it's coming. It also, judgment isn't just something that should sober us and humble us. It should also be something of knowing God is going to get his vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It should should be a way in which we walk in our life of knowing, I don't have to get back at other people. God's going to take care of it. In the end, God's going to take care of it all. So if I get, if somebody mistreats me on the streets of Ocoee, God God will work it out. If somebody, um, if I miss out on a bunch of money because somebody really messed me up, God will work it out. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Now, this brings further context to the repeated warnings throughout the book. That that the book is written uh, for faithfulness and watchfulness, that, that it, it kind of brings some context to when John says in Revelation 18.4, come away from her, my people, talking about Babylon, do not take part in her sins or you'll be punished with her. He's speaking about the Roman Empire. The imagery of Babylon was 
was used. Babylon wasn't around then, but there was, it was used in the context of Rome. And he's speaking to the churches, come away, come out from her way of life. Don't take part in her sins, the sins of the culture, but, but take part in, you got to come out of her or you're going to receive the punishment that they receive. John in Revelation 18 is in essence singing the funeral song over Rome and calling people out of the sins of the empire. And what we're having here in Revelation, it's painting a picture of the church and state, let's use our language here. We can even just put empire here. And it's creating a distinction between the two, but there's about to be a collision of magnitude over who runs the universe. Does the empire have the ultimate control? Does the state have the ultimate control? Or does the church? And there's this collision course that's about to, about to happen, and John fully recognizes that the power and the victory presently appears to be in the empire's court. The ball is in the empire and the state's court. And he's writing, saying, I know the ball is in their court right now, and that you might even die, but God is going to bring judgment to them and salvation to you. I know it looks like they're winning. You might even go to death thinking they won, but they haven't. Because of Romans, Rome's, because of Rome's arrogance and oppression, God will bring her to ruin. The ruin to come is seen in verses six through eight of chapter eighteen. Let's go ahead and just turn there. Let's look at it. I want to read a little bit. Of Rome, of Romans. I keep on Revelation as we're talking about the Roman Empire. My goodness. Revelation 18, verses 6 through 8, talks about the ruin to come for the empire. It says, Do to her as she's done to others, double her penalty for all of her evil deeds. She brewed a cup of terror for others, so brew twice as much for her. She glorified herself and lived in luxury. So match it now with torment and sorrow. She boasted in her heart, I am queen on my throne. I am no helpless widow. I have no reason to mourn. Therefore, these plagues will overtake her in a single day. Death and mourning and famine. She will be completely consumed by fire, for the Lord God who judges her is mighty. At the heart of everything in Revelation is the cult of the emperor who had begun to be worshipped as Lord and Savior. And to understand The cult worship 
of the emperor as God. I shared last week from Philippians chapter 2 about the images that would be displayed in the courts. That there were these statues that when they would go out that would present Caesar and present the emperor as not only uh, not only the emperor as overall, but in a way of saying that they were a part of divinity themselves. And the the major protest why why uh, Christianity was so persecuted so early on and so vastly was because. We claim there's only one Lord, and his name is Jesus, and it's not Caesar. That the emperor is not divine, only Jesus is divine. That, that, that the emperor, that we're, we will never worship this guy, because we worship one guy, right. and his name's Jesus. See, empire had taken the place of God, and God will not be mocked. Judgment is coming for the empire. The empire had said, we are divine. The emperor had said, I am God. It says here in Revelation 18, it says, uh, she boasted in her heart, I am queen on my throne. So thus, these verses that we've read early about coming away from her and coming out of her, they serve as warnings for the people of God amongst the coming judgment and persecution. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 and 10. Let's read a couple of passages from Revelation. Revelation 14, verses 9 and 10. And these verses are going to serve as a warning for the people of God for the coming judgment and persecution. Then a third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast and his statue, who accepts his mark on the forehead and on the hand, must drink the wine of God's anger. It's been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath. They will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of holy angels and the lamb revelation 18:4 once more says come away from her my people do not take part in her sins or you will be punished with her but the prophetic word of this book isn't just a warning about the people of god being brainwashed if you will into the worship of the emperor it's also an encouragement, as John repeatedly announces, that God, not the empire, is in control of history. That it seems like they hold the power now, but truly the power is on the side of the church. That God will finally bring judgment and justice and pour out his wrath on the persecutor. And that at the end, God will bring eternal rest to the faithful. Now, I want to look at two words real quick that I, I want us to have some clarity on because these two words in Revelation 
can lead maybe to uh, a misunderstanding of what's happening. And that because we misunderstand what's happening, we then begin to uh, craft the text meaning something more to us than what it meant to them. The first is this Greek word, philipsis, T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. And it means tribulation. I misspelled tribulation. I spelled it tributation. (laughs) You understand what I'm writing. Again, I write in tongues and you need the gift to interpret uh, what I'm writing. And the other word is this word, orgy, which is where we get the word wrath from. And tribulation, which includes suffering and death, is clearly part of what the church was already enduring. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says, I know that you live in the... In the city where Satan has his throne, you remain loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you right there in Satan's city. And John's primary prophetic word is this tribulation, this suffering, the death you're experiencing is going to get worse before it gets better. But it shouldn't surprise you. He's, he's, he's kind of like, uh, anybody here don't, not, not like the suspense of things? You'd rather somebody just tell you, like, it's no secrets, you know, like, don't, don't surprise me with a birthday party. I just want to know what's happening. I'll act surprised when it happens, but I want to know about the surprise. In essence... He's, he's letting them in and saying, listen, when the, when the tribulation comes to you, like it shouldn't catch you off guard. You're experiencing suffering, but there's probably going to be some more suffering. Don't let it catch you off guard. Now, John's second prophetic message, it begins to set this idea of tribulation into a divine perspective. So tribulation is what they're experiencing and going to experience. Whereas God's wrath, which could also be known as his judgment, God's wrath, his judgment, will finally be poured out on those responsible for the suffering. The main idea of Revelation, I'm going to try to, I'm going to give you two sentences, Okay. I'm going to try to sum up the entire book right here. The book of Revelation was written to encourage a persecuted church to remain firm and faithful in their faith as more persecution awaited them. But they can take heart because there's coming a greater eschatological victory where God will judge those responsible and vindicate the persecuted. The empire's coming for you. 
The empire wants to control you. And you might even be put to death because they're coming for you. But no, your death is not in vain. In fact, there's a vindication that's coming that's greater than anything you could actually earn yourself. And judgment is coming on the empire. Judgment is coming to the emperor. So that gives us a little backstory as to why it was written and under the context it was written, right? Now let's look at how do we approach it and interpret it. Sound good? I'm really, uh, I'm being a little facetious here, but I'm really looking forward to tonight's Q&A, you know? <laughs> oh, man. So how, right? How are we to approach Revelation? So we've used, um, we want to be faithful interpreters. We want to be faithful to the whole scope of the countenance of God's word. We said around here, we said it a lot. Scripture interprets scripture. Um, we want to allow the clear things to help us interpret the not so clear things. And this is true, but when we're speaking about scripture's revelation, we need to be careful that we are not misappropriating other scriptures to revelation. Meaning, if, if, if the scripture doesn't have eschatological significance, we want to make sure that we're not appropriating that scripture into revelation. We can use other eschatological passages to help us interpret what John is saying, but oftentimes we need to make sure we're not misinterpreting that passage to then inform the book of Revelation. I'm going to give us five simple, easy things, rules, if you will, for interpreting Revelation. Read Revelation in humility, with humility. Those who think they have revelation figured out, they probably don't. Those who claim to have some secret insight about revelation, they probably don't. And in fact, are probably found well outside modern scholarly interpretations of revelation. Anyone that claims to understand everything in detail should be held in suspicion and at arm's length because we want to approach it with humility. Number two, let's discover the original meaning. Just like we've been doing with every other book of the Bible. What is the original meaning happening here? What was the original word being said to the original 
readers. What is the message to the original readers, the original listeners? The primary meaning of the revelation has to be what John intended it to be, that it can't mean something for us that it didn't mean for them. So if John did not intend it to mean something one way, we can't just appropriate it another way, which in turn, we must also... It must also have been something his readers could have understood it to mean in their context. The third thing. I'm trying to figure out how to write this on the board. Um, And this is probably one of the things uh, that we do the most. Don't try to discover a strict chronological map of future events. Because the book of Revelation is not trying to do that. The book is not trying to convey a clear chronological understanding for what is about to happen. Rather, it's giving dramatic images to make an impact to the readers and the listeners. It doesn't speak in a straight line. I'm going to give you, for instance, Revelation chapter 6, verse 12 through 17. I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun began, became as dark as black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree, shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolling up like a scroll, and all of the mountains and the islands were moved from their places. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, every slave, every free person, all hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of mountains. They cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the place of the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the day of their wrath has come. Who is able to survive Notice here that by the opening of the sixth seal, it takes us to the very end. This is the end. This is, this is the moment the wrath of God is being poured out. Everything is falling in on itself. And this is the moment of the end of the age. Then we keep reading when the seventh seal is opened, it brings a whole new sets of judgments. These judgments are heard in the trumpets and on the seventh trumpet the seventh judgment revelation chapter 11 verses 15 through 19 says this then the seventh angel blew his trumpet there were loud voices shouting in heaven the world has now become the kingdom of our lord and of his uh, and of his christ and he will reign forever and ever the 24 angels, uh, the 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God fell on their faces to the ground and worshiped him. And they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God, the almighty, the one who is the one who always was for now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were filled with wrath 
But now the time of your wrath has come. Notice, we're at the same moment, at the end of the seventh seal, as we are at the end of the, of the sixth. It is time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people and all who fear your name from the least to the greatest. It is time to destroy all you who have caused destruction on the earth. Two different images of what's happening. One is the earth is going save us from this wrath. And the other group is going, uh, God, you're finally sitting on your throne. We're contrasting here the church's response versus the empire's response. They're trying to hide and kill themselves in the, to, to, to escape the wrath of God. Whereas the wrath of God now is seen as this joyous thing. But it's happening at the same time. It's not progressing in chronological order. There's another set of judgments that begin with the first bowl in Revelation 16 verses 1 and 2. Revelation 19 through 22 probably paints the most colorful and detailed picture of the end. And it, 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 there's great argument to be made that Revelation 19 through 22 can be taken in a chronological sense. But we, always, we already see that this is not the first time the audience has been transported to the end. For a whole other class, a whole other talk. There's, there's views that in Revelation that, that, that these, these seven judgments and the seven seals, that there's a cyclical effect that's happening throughout the course of history. That, that it is a way in which, it is a pattern, if you will, of how the seasons of things happen as a, as a way of God inviting the world into salvation, and it's happening cyclically. Is that correct? How do I say that? Cyc cyclically. Cyclically. But you're not sick. You, know, you understand cyclically like a cycle. So instead of trying to form a chronological map of future events in Revelation, I encourage you to grasp the main, the main message in each vision about living in the here and now. Grasp what's happening in each chapter, the message that's trying to be said in each chapter, and then see how it applies in the here and now. Number four. Take the book of Revelation seriously, but not always literally. We've been using this term all throughout Sunday school. We want to read literarily, not literally. Because we don't approach, we may say, I read scripture literally. We really don't, right? You don't believe that God is a rock. When, so when the, when the psalmist says, the Lord is my rock, my salvation, we're, we're reading it literarily. We should approach Revelation on its literary terms, just like we approach Psalms on its terms. Number five, focus on the main idea. You don't always have to press the issues. Because when we start pressing and getting into uh, 
we start eisegeting instead of exegeting. Eisegeting, we covered it in week one, is where you start reading into the text. Something that's not there. Exegeting is when you allow the text to be read to you for what it actually means. Supposedly, Jesus was coming back in 1984. But then the book was rewritten. Instead of 84 reasons, Jesus come back in 1984 to 85 reasons, Jesus coming back in 1985. Well, we're here in 2023, and unless we missed it, <laughs> and it's not, the second coming is not something that you, this is another talk maybe for the eschatology class, but it's not something that you're going to miss. It's something that's going to be grand, and it's going to be, everybody's going to see it. It's not going to be something that you're like, oh, crap. What happened? Can I say, I, 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 should I say that? <laughs> not necessarily can I say that, should I say that. I apologize for saying the C word. Uh, I wouldn't say that around my daughter, so I probably shouldn't say it at Sunday school. I want to do, I, we're, we're pushing time, so I'm right at an hour, um, but I, I, wanna, I, want, I really want to try to make Revelation palatable for you. So I want to take Revelation chapter 1 and go through it. I almost put like a forewarning that tonight is going to be a lot like week 1. It's just such a vast, there's so much misinformation, let's put it that way about Revelation, that I really wanted to take, my, take our time as we kind of go through it. But I want us to look at just some observations. Revelation chapter 1, if you have your phone or your Bible, let's read it. I want, let's read it together. And as, as we're going through it, I'm going to just stop. And I'm going to give some commentary. And, and the commentaries that, that you have for, Reve, for, for Sunday school that I've, I've um, uh, encouraged you to get, the one by Craig Keener treats Revelation very well. It says this in verse 1. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ. Actually, when the word from there can be interpreted two ways, not just a revelation from Jesus Christ, because this was received from Jesus, but in some of your Bibles, you may even have an asterisk there. It's called a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not just a revelation of, of, uh, that came from Jesus, but it's a revelation of who Jesus is, that the empire is not the Lord, that Jesus is the Lord. Relation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. So again, soon take place. Given to the original audience. I think that's important for us to look at. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Revelation is being classified there already as, as the word of God, but also the testimony of Jesus Christ. That all of this, the imagery, everything, is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the central message of Revelation. Verse 3, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. Remember their context. There would be one person that's reading to the church. 
and he blesses all who listen to its message. Again, be read by one person, listened by a multitude of people. All who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. The key to how the church was to respond was to be obedient to God. To not be obedient to Rome at the expense of being obedient to God. Because they're still meant to be good citizens. Paul writes in Romans to pray for those that are in charge. So these guys are being persecuted and you're supposed to pray for them. Like it, it kind of, it sends a mixed message almost. But the message isn't mixed. You obey the emperor unless it causes you to disobey God. And then God takes precedence. Why? Because the time is near. What is it? Jesus is coming back. Why? Because the spirit is being poured out. So as Pentecostals, we do the same thing that John does here in the early church. We see the Spirit's outpouring as proof that he's coming soon. Verse 4, this letter, notice it's the letter, is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So it's got a specific audience, seven churches in Asia, he says, Greece, Greece, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne, from Jesus Christ. Oh, I love what John's doing here is he's giving a Trinitarian image of heaven. The one who was, one who is and is to come. The sevenfold spirit can be interpreted as the Holy Spirit. Sevenfold, uh, seven is the number of perfection, the perfect spirit in Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead, the ruler of all the kings of the world. This was a scandalous letter being written that would be passed around in an empire that was going to kill them. It'd be like you receiving, the one of the seven churches receiving this letter, and you're like, just by receiving the letter, you're, you're probably uh, guilty. Guilty by association. You're reading this and listening to this, you're guilty by association. It's like John's getting these churches in trouble. He says, he's the, Jesus is the ruler of all the kings of the world. He is the penultimate ruler. All glory to Jesus who loves us, has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He's reminding them of what Jesus has done. I love verse 6. He's made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven. And everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. All the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. This is the verse that, the, that, that is the image we're meant to keep our eyes on in Revelation. Look, Jesus is coming. 
And he's not just coming. We're not just going to be the ones that see him. But the people that killed him will see him. The people that are persecuting us will see him. His coming is going to be grand. All of the nations will mourn. It gives the same image that the nations are going to run into these rocks, right? And Revelation uh, 6 that we read, where the, the six seals open and, and they're, they're running for cover. But for us, man, we need to be watchful. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, who is still to come, the Almighty One. Again, this is direct language against Caesar. I, John, and your brother, your partner in suffering. So John's writing of them going, hey, you're not going through this alone. I'm suffering with you. I'm your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance which Jesus calls us to. That Jesus calls us to patiently endure. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the spirit. May we never allow our circumstances to determine when and where we worship. I'm going to get on a little rant here just for 30 seconds. If John can be enslaved on the island of Patmos and still make it to worship on a Sunday, come on somebody, with the Spirit, then Lord, when we're on vacation, may we pull over and find a little country church and worship on a Sunday. One of the greatest memories I have as a child, we were... Coming back from Gatlinburg on a family vacation, I was like 12, and it was Sunday at 9.45 a.m., approaching 10.30. Pastor, my dad, says, all right, we're pulling over. Didn't have, there was no cell phones for internet, but 10.30 is typically the time you gather for worship on a Sunday. We got off on a random exit, and we went to a little country Baptist church in the sticks of Georgia, and we were in church on Sunday. That's always stuck with me. Vacation, you know, we just weren't able to not miss church. And we got it so convenient now, we can tune in on stream, you know. And Paul's on the island of Patmos, for goodness sakes. <laughs> it was Sunday. I was worshiping in the spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see. Send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatra, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And we're going to see what these gold lamp stands mean. One way in Revelation, if, if John's giving you what they are, that's what they are. So the seven lamp stands are always meant to represent the churches. Why are they lamp stands? Because they are light in the world. And standing in the middle 
of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. So he gets this image, there's seven lampstands, and then there's Jesus standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. The Son of Man is Jesus. This is so powerful because they're experiencing persecution. This is going to be the image that sets up everything else in Revelation. And he's going, when you're in the midst of persecution, the Son of Man, Jesus, is there with you. He's standing in the lampstands. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. Now, is he telling us what Jesus looks like? I don't think so. I think he's painting this grand image of the grandness of Jesus. So does Jesus literally um, have eyes like flames of fire? Probably not. I, mean, I don't think so because Thomas didn't, oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> he, he, he's gonna, he had a real human body still. He had scars in his hands like we talk about today. But again, he's painting an image. He held seven stars in his right hand. A sharp sword came from his mouth. His face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But, I laid, but he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. You know, the number one command given in the Bible is do not fear. Don't be afraid. May we read the, Revelation, the book of Revelation and not be afraid, amen? <laughs> May we not be afraid to read it. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. I couldn't help but think about, as I read this this afternoon, of what I preached on today. That Jesus comes to Thomas and says, see, my body's alive. I'm not dead. And then Jesus looks at John and says, practically the same thing. I am the living one. I died. But look. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at my side. Look on me. I am the one you knew. I'm not different. I am the Jesus that you followed. I am the Jesus that you've given your life for. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. You think Caesar controls your life? I hold the keys to life. I hold the keys to death. You think Caesar controls what happens to you? I hold the keys. Write down what you've seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. Verse 20, this is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands 
are the seven churches. Not only is Jesus in the middle of the seven lampstands, but he's holding the angels of the seven churches in his hand. It's so beautiful. Not only is Jesus with us, he's holding us. It's my prayer that we will unspookify revelation. Allow it to speak to us. Because when we read on its terms, it's powerful. I don't know about you, but Revelation 1 just got me like fired up. It's beautiful, beautiful imagery. Amen? All right, I'm done. I know we also have Q&A. So this was the longest. I apologize. Um, but I don't get to see you for another four weeks, so because this is our last Sunday school till after Easter. We'll talk about that in a minute. But let's do Q&A. If I haven't muddied the waters good enough, um, ask away uh, anything and everything. And if you have any questions, maybe about, you know, I heard this. Um, if I'm able to respond uh, adequately, I will answer it to the best of my ability. If I'm not able to give an intelligible response then I will uh, shoot you an email, <laughs> okay? Awesome. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Sort of like um, she's asking, when I was like, this is the main idea, right? Is that what I said? All right, so I said this. The book of Revelation was written to encourage a persecuted church. So if you're, like, it was written to encourage people facing persecution, to remain firm in their faith, and that more persecution was coming. So encouraging the persecuted, but also that they should take heart um, because that there's a great victory ahead where God is going to judge those responsible and vindicate the persecuted. In the end, we win. That's what he's, what he's, hey, there's persecution ahead. And I think how, how palatable is this message to us as Christians in America? Hey, the world's changing. We're entering a post-Christian society. Um, there's persecution ahead. But hey, there's, we win in the end. No matter what the government does to us, uh, God's vindicating it. Brother Tom. Yeah, it sounds actually, in a sense, very much like North Korea right now. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. With, uh, I don't know if it's the same person, whatever. Kim Jong-un. Kim. 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 Exactly. So for us, 
in, in the Asian countries. So um, a lot of the scholarly work that I've read, Revelation is very foreign to us because, again, I used this word last week, and I'm like, I don't like how it's been hijacked by culture. So I say it with in a preface. For us, we are so privileged. We don't know what persecution is. We don't know, like the church in China, what persecution is. And so for us, it's kind of unrelatable. And because it's unrelatable, we then kind of, <laughs> we start appropriating things that, well, then the nations in the East are going to be the Ottoman Empire. It was Ottoman Empire in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and now it's some other nations that have risen up. You know, it's, and we start appropriating this idea of, and trying to create what it's going to look like. And Revelation's saying, it's really, it's speaking to the church in China. It's speaking to the church in North Korea, just like it spoke to the church, the early church. Persecution's coming. But vengeance is coming too. Be alert, be watchful. Because as the Spirit's poured out, it's proof that Jesus is coming soon. And that should bring us so much hope and excitement. As the Spirit's poured out, it's proof that God has not forgotten about us. But Jesus, I get this image that he's like sitting like a child on the edge of his seat, waiting for the Father to say it's time. Rapid growth. Exactly. What the enemy means to harm the church, God uses to spread. Uh, there might be a correlation <laughs> to the seemingly of Christianity decreasing in America as the comfortability of Christianity has risen in America because the pressing and the persecution has always caused the church to expand. It's always helped the church. It's never hurt the church. Amen. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Right. And right. And I think approaching it when you get to these passages in Revelation fourteen, and you and it talks about the harlot, and it talks about this stuff, and. And we will eventually, the number one thing that people put down wanting to study was Revelation. So, uh, well, it was tied. It was tied with Revelation and uh, church history was one. That was really, the early church fathers and talking to that was, was, was good. 
Uh, so we'll, we're going to do a whole thing because it really needs to be a whole class on Revelation so that we can actually go through and look at the imagery. But when you're looking at this main idea, the section of what's happening with the harlot and what's happening with the beast and what's happening with all of this, um, try to just understand the main general idea of what's being said and then what does this mean for me today? What does it mean? Um, I, I want to ask. I want to answer a couple questions of my own because maybe uh, people are nervous to ask this or not. But uh, I want to give you some encouragement. Uh, as a as a Christian, do you have you know the questions often asked? Do what's the mark of the beast? And we're concerned about taking the mark of the beast and. The credit card was the mark of the beast, and then the cell phones were the mark of the beast, and then the vaccine was the mark of the beast. And there, we're very suspicious of what the mark of the beast could be. I want to give you peace of mind, because as a Christian, you have the mark of God, and nothing you put in your body or in uh, nothing like that can take away what God has marked you with. The enemy's power is no power to God's power. The enemy's wickedness is no power to the blood of Jesus. As a believer, you do not have to worry about accidentally taking the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast. This would be more scholarly. And also, I would, I would take this, this view. The mark of the beast is not a physical thing you can take. There's a reason it's written on the foreheads. It is a control that the empire has on your mind that causes you to worship the emperor. Whereas we have the mark of God and God controls our mind and we worship the Lord. That's what John is creating this image. Um, so, you know, when people post on Facebook, do that, it, you know, it, sometimes we're curious people, but I think we need to be grounded in an understanding that you can't just like accidentally take something that's going to get your soul's going to be turned etern eternally damned for. Does it make sense? Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. It's great. The question is, will the church go through the tribulation? I'm repeating it for the sake of stream. I think it would be hard to tell the Coptic Christians in Egypt that they're not going through the tribulation right now. I think it would be hard to tell the North Korean church and the Chinese church and the Cuban church that they're not going through the tribulation. I think it's easy for us to wonder on those things. And I think when John is writing, I wish I had those two Greek words, and he's talking about the, rev the, the tribulation that they're experiencing, the Thlipsis, the thlipsis. 
I think the early church went through tribulation. But we need to differentiate the difference between God's, the tribulation that's coming to the church or has come to the church and the church has already walked through and the church is walking through from the wrath of God that is yet to come. Jesus is coming back. It's happening soon. In many ways, the world's going to get way worse and the world's going to have this mighty revival outpouring. It's, it's this beautiful thing. That's what we're seeing play out in front of us. Um, and so that's kind of where, too, where it gets, uh, this is a whole other class. We get into pre-trib, pre, pre mid-trib, post-trib, no-trib. <laughs> I just hope I make the trip. Come on, somebody. This is a joke. Um, I think that's just the wrong question. I think that's more eisegeting than exegeting. Think when you start getting it, I don't think I know when you start getting into is there a literal seven years and this and that. You start nowhere in the Bible does it say there's a seven year tribulation. It's just plain and simple, does not say that. You got to add up 1,000 some hundred days in Daniel and you got to multiply it by them too. So you get three and a half years here and then three and a half years here, and it kind of makes almost a perfect seven year. Whole another topic. That's an that's a whole thing on eschatology, and that's what's called dispensational, uh, dispensational premillennialism, dispensational eschatology. That's the predominant eschatology in a, a lot of evangelical churches. Um, and it was it was sort of invented in 1820 by a guy named Darby. I think it was John Darby or whatever his name is, Darby. And it was printed in a Bible called the Schofield Study Bible, and it was perpetuated as the predominant eschatological um, means. Darby invented it. Listen, it, it believes that we are, it, it divides time into these different seven dispensations. And the dispensation, according to Darby, does not believe that the gifts are so operable. It's the cessationism. So it does not believe that the gifts are operable, that the spirit is here. We, the, the, we are in the, we, that's not where we're at. And so it is an anti, whether Pentecostals believe it or not, or un, no, whether Pentecostals understand it or not, it is an anti-Pentecostal uh, um, way of understanding the end times because we see the spirit as proof that Jesus is about to come back any moment, any day, any time. He's on his seat. And when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be something that secretly happens. It's going to be this grand event that Revelation 1-7 says everybody's going to see it, even the people that crucified him. So it's this grand moment where when Jesus comes back, Judgment happens to the empires. And salvation happens to the people of God. In the Assemblies of God, we believe that when Jesus comes back, they had judgment, salvation, and that we will then, when Jesus comes back, our bodies will be raised from the dead transformed into glorious new bodies and we will reign with Jesus 
on the earth for a thousand years, allowing the earth to get the freedom that it finally has been calling and billowing out for until the ultimate time when Revelation 22 Do 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven, the old earth, it disappeared, and the sea was also gone. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, bull of beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne, saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. We're going to be able to live with God in a new heavens, new earth that is one that's going to be much greater than Eden ever was. No more sorrow. We're going to be able to live what it means to be truly human. You've been hearing me talk on this idea, free from sin. We're not going to have a sin nature anymore. What does it mean to be human and not have a sin nature? Well, it looks like Jesus. We know that. Oh, that's cool. I think we're going to be able to travel. And I love life. My grandfather loved life. He hated the idea that he would die and go to heaven and be a spirit for the rest of his life. But that's not, that's not the end of the story. The goal is not to leave here and get to heaven and stay there forever. Heaven is, a, is our, the absence of bodies, you're present with the Lord. We die, we go to heaven with the Lord. But the goal is when Jesus comes back that there will be a new heaven that descends and heaven and earth will be one and God will make his home with us. Amen. Awesome. All right. Yeah, if you have any more questions, you can ask me uh, later uh, or tonight. We can, we can talk through it. If you want more material on uh, what to read, I, I would encourage you to pick up. Gordon Fee has a commentary called Revelation that's very good. Um, but again, I have the books, the commentary set, the Bible dictionary, the study Bible is supposed to be here, but um, somehow it's been on a FedEx truck in Okoe since Thursday. So, <laughs> exactly. It says it'll be here tomorrow. So, uh, just uh, give your money to the Sunday School Fund if you haven't picked your books up yet. And then Sunday School is back on April 23rd. Sunday, April 23rd. I'm not sure the topic yet. Um, but I, I think what we're going to do, we're going to do six weeks. Eight, eight weeks, thank you all for hanging out with me. I appreciate it. You all were right here the whole, t the entire time. Faithful group. Um, I want to make it palatable for everybody else, and it feels like six weeks is a better, maybe a better, um, better, you know, thing. Cool?
Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. And I just pray that the last eight weeks, God, that people will feel like they've got some new tools in their toolbox for how to approach your word on your terms. Lord, we want to be faithful to scripture. We don't want to make an image of you out of ourselves. We want to see you for who you truly are. And scripture gives us the clearest way of understanding that. And Jesus, I pray that as we leave this place, I just pray for the next six weeks, I pray that as people engage with your word, they study your word, I just pray for a richness in their devotions, a richness in their study that they've never had before. May it be the greatest time by reading your word they've ever had in their life. Lord, bless us, keep us. Let us be faithful witnesses to you in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Awesome, thank you so much.